Welcome to Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, all things Dominic Dunn. And yeah, we're starting a little different today. Welcome to a double done day, because I am not done yet talking about the new Amsterdam theater. Olive Thomas's story naturally leads me to the new Amsterdam theater. And so much in research never makes it to the story. Hence, the emergency, not done yet, talking about the New Amsterdam Theater episode you're getting right now. Olive Thomas's New Amsterdam Theater is the one in New York City. And I like to clarify that as a Gen X kid, Olive's New Amsterdam is not the building that Adam Duritz and the Counting Crows are paying homage to in their song, Mr. Jones. Remember Mr. Jones from the album August and Everything After? If you lived in 1994, you couldn't escape it. Hence, let's talk about this particular New Amsterdam. The Counting Crows in the New Amsterdam they are singing about is located on the West Coast in San Francisco. There was a bar there for a long time called the New Amsterdam. It was across the street from Bimbo's 365 Club. The New Amsterdam Theater was the location that gave inspiration to Adam Duritz for the song Mr. Jones, and Adam Duritz tells about it this way on VH1 Storytellers. It's really a song about my friend Marty and I. We went out one night to watch his dad play. His dad was a flamenco guitar player who lived in Spain, and he was in San Francisco in the mission playing with his old flamenco troupe. And after a gig, we all went to this bar called the New Amsterdam in San Francisco on Columbus, and we got completely drunk. Marty and I sat in the bar staring at these two girls, wishing there was some way we could go talk to them, but we were too shy. We kept joking with each other that if we were big rock stars instead of such loser, low-budget musicians, this would be easy. I went home that night and wrote a song about it. The other added bit that is the spider web you may want to know about this song is that Kenny Dale Johnson, who is the drummer from the Chris Isaac band, is also in the New Amsterdam that night, and he is easily chatting up three different ladies. And Adam and Marty are looking at him so easily talking to girls as Adam is thinking about all the thoughts that will go into his debut Mr. Jones song from August and everything after. If you live in San Francisco, you can go to 1000 Columbus Avenue, where which you will now find the International Sports Bar, which used to be the location of the New Amsterdam. None of that had anything to do with Olive Thomas, but when I think of going down to the New Amsterdam as a Counting Crows fan and a Gen X living in 1994 kid, you know where my brain goes, I would be remiss if I just didn't mention that one to let you know they are two separate places and give you a little bit of the history behind that particular location. Okay, so let's gear up to travel from the West Coast over to the East Coast for the New Amsterdam that is key into the story of Olive Thomas, and also in a lot of ways key to the actual city of New York. Take out your time travel mechanisms. We're going to go back to 1903, where October 26th of 1903... If you are at the address of 214 West 42nd Street, you would find one of the most spectacular things that ever happens in New York City. Because this day, October the 26th, 1903, is the day the New Amsterdam Theater opens. Let me tell you about the New Amsterdam. 
1903. This is long before Olive Thomas. New Amsterdam, when it's built, is a seven-story theater. It is designed by Henry Hertz and Hugh Talent. And Henry and Hugh want to build a theater like New York City has ever seen, and by golly, they do. The New Amsterdam is larger than life. It is Art Nouveau at its best. It is the first representation in New York City of Art Nouveau. The outside of the building, seven stories as well, have incandescent light highlighting the building. This is long, decades before the days of billboards. The sheer glamour magnitude wonder of the New Amsterdam Theater would have stunned New York City in 1903. There's never been anything like it before, maybe not after. It's a -a one-of-a-kind kind of place. If we move into the lobby of the New Amsterdam Theater, we are going to find marble wall sculptures that depict moments from great Shakespearean plays, as well as scenes from Wagner's Ring Cycle operas. The design theme will continue into the main house of the theater, where Shakespearean characters blend with other iconic literary figures, Hans Christian Andersen, Aesop's fables, classic myths. Within the theater, you will find it decorated with forests and apples and peacocks and goddesses too. You'll find fairies and other kind of creatures. You, Even if you look hard enough, will find a puck about the place from Midsummer Night's Dream. Here's what I want you to know is that the whole theater is built and designed specifically for the new and opening run in 1903 of A Midsummer Night's Dream by William Shakespeare. When the New Amsterdam opens, naturally, that classic play is performed, but the next morning in New York City, no one is talking about Midsummer Night's Dream because they are all talking about the New Amsterdam Theater. In the period of one opening night, New Amsterdam will get the name The House Beautiful, quote-unquote, for the rest of time. That's your code if you live in New York City and you're meeting at the House Beautiful. You're going to the New Amsterdam. To this day, the New Amsterdam Theater is the oldest operating theater of Broadway and is designated as an official landmark. Before we get to the New Amsterdam rolling into the Ziegfeld Follies days, I want to tell you about a little controversy that happened there in 1907. In 1907, The Merry Widow is showing at the New Amsterdam. Very famous play, and the actress that's in that starring role is wearing a very large and very flouncy hat. When I say large and flouncy, I'm talking three feet in diameter hat. This is quite an Easter bonnet. Because of the House Beautiful and the fame of the New Amsterdam and the Merry Widow, this hat becomes very well known in New York City and every lady wants one. Let's go ahead and just do a quick cultural flashback here. We all contend now when we go into theaters with cell phones. A few decades ago, it was pagers. There's always been something happening within the theater, and here we lament the old days. Hats were the consternation back then. People would come to the theater and leave their hats on. 
this is what the sign said in your theater. Not turn off your cell phones, but please take off your hat. The Merry Widow has been playing a long time. We're going to get to the 275th performance of The Merry Widow. And the producers of the play have a fantastic idea. With all the rage of The Merry Widow hats and all the ladies in New York City wanting one, the producers of The Merry Widow figure that it would be a great promotion (laughs) to have a giveaway. And we're going to give a Merry Widow hat to every woman in attendance for the 275th performance of the show. This is about 1,700 seats full on in the New Amsterdam Theater. So the producers sit down, scratch out a little math, and think they may get 400 or so women to show up who would be interested in their hat giveaway. The producers decide to triple that number and get 1,200 Merry Widow hats, thinking possibly Some men will take them home to their wives. 1,200 hats should be enough to cover us. It'll be fine. Investigators, it was not fine. It was an all-out brawling fight that happens in the New Amsterdam Theater that is now known in history as the Hat Skirmish. Because it turns out that day, at the 275th performance of The Merry Widow, that very few men went to the theater that day and pretty much 1,700 ladies show up with only 1,200 hats. You may see that there's perhaps a problem in the way this mathematical equation works out. This was a legendary day at the New Amsterdam Theater where the physical show moves off the stage and into the aisles because it is a full-on debacle within the theater that day. It's funny when we talk about the old days, how people acted so much better than they did 100 years ago. I don't know if I necessarily believe that. Humans are mostly going to human. Okay, so let's go ahead and skip along in the rest of our spider webs here for this not done yet, because once we finish with the hat skirmish, we're going to go ahead and move our timetable up to 1913, This is 10 years after the New Amsterdam opens when Ziegfeld Follies will launch within the New Amsterdam Theater. The Follies becomes the height of all theatrical entertainment within the city. Ziegfeld Follies will run 14 years at the New Amsterdam Theater, running really from 1913 to 1927. And if you want to go down a fun spiderweb, do pull up videos or photos. Florence Ziegfeld really has put together quite a remarkable show. You have spectacular sets, lavish costumes. You have the biggest stars of the day coming in to do their acts. You have beautiful girls. You've got, holy cats, everything. We all want something beautiful, to quote Mr. Jones. These Ziegfeld Folly productions are vast. They're opulent. They are an enormous deal every night for 14 years. You dress in your absolute finest clothing. It is a nightly spectacle. What goes down at the New Amsterdam, not only within the main theater, but also that rooftop theater as well. 14 years, a really long, successful run, But what happens by the time 1927 rolls around? 
talkies happen. And the New Amsterdam at this point will shift its format to being a movie house as opposed to the Ziegfeld Follies. And the New Amsterdam will remain a movie house for the next few decades. By 1929 in New York City, it's a pretty terrible time. The Depression is happening. And the New Amsterdam Theater is still open and showing films. But through the next five decades, the beauty of the building is fading a little bit. So is the area around that particular building. By the time the new Amsterdam Theater rolls into the 1950s and 1960s, the entire district around the new Amsterdam is showing X-rated films. It's kind of seedy. There's a lot of drugs, a lot of crime. This is very different than the showy, bright lights, renovated Times Square that exists today. Back in the 1950s, 1960s, nobody could have imagined the way that Times Square looked today, still very much in the future. By the 1950s and 1960s, the entire district in and around the New Amsterdam is showing X-rated films, but not the New Amsterdam. They have a clause in their particular lease that they are not allowed to show X-rated films. Therefore, the New Amsterdam Theater becomes the premier place within New York City instead to watch kung fu movies. It is the kung fu palace. Everyone, it seems, wants to be kung fu fighting. By the mid-1980s, the New Amsterdam Theater has closed. It has, as a building, really taken some hits. It's sort of broken down. It's falling apart. And here, the New Amsterdam Theater will sit until 1993, when enter the magic of Disney. Rudy Giuliani, mayor of the city at this point, and all of the city commissioners are like, hey, let's renovate the theater district. We are losing all kinds of money because people are really afraid to come here. And Disney, pretty good at always finding a way to capitalize, is in the market to look for a property to stage their adaptation for Broadway of the hit movie The Lion King. Disney naturally thinks, probably going to be successful, we may as well own our own theater. And it's not like there's a lack of available places. Again, Times Square, before it goes through this incredible transformation, there are lots of buildings around, theaters around, that are all abandoned and deserted. So Michael Eisner, head of Disney, is like, what is the best, worst place around? Welcome to the former house beautiful, the New Amsterdam Theater. So taking a tour of the place, just as a a little scope out, There is two feet of standing water in the building. There are mushrooms growing that are the size of dinner plates just all throughout the building. The New Amsterdam Theater at this point, 90 years later, is a beautiful place that is very broken. And Disney, we all know it, has a little bit of magic. Disney will sign a 99-year lease on the New Amsterdam and promptly get about to restoring the house beautiful to its glory days, circa 1920. I will say this about Disney. They are committed to the product. They research archival photos. 
They are really dedicating themselves to restoring this theater to the pinnacle of its glory, really, right? In the Ziegfeld Folly days, 1920. Disney goes through and wants to recycle all the incandescent lights that were in use at that time. This renovation costs about $38 million. I don't think Disney's too worried about the price tag. They're going to make that back on The Lion King, no problem. The Lion King, when it comes to Broadway, does premiere in its grand opening at the New Amsterdam Theater. Here's something that should knock your socks off. The Lion King is the highest grossing global box office show on Broadway. Knocks out Phantom of the Opera, which has grossed $6 billion. The Lion King has grossed $8.1 billion. The Lion King will run for 20 years at the New Amsterdam Theater to be replaced by Aladdin. Disney definitely made their money back. I don't think anybody worries too much about Disney making their money back. Now, even with the $38 million renovation, the Disney people have to make a choice here. The three-story limestone arch that graces the theater was covered up by a billboard that was added later to the theater. But as the Disney team is renovating, there's a little bit of a complication. They have a choice here to make because the arch and the billboard have both been there long enough that they can go either way for restoration purposes. Disney will decide to keep the billboard, but if you are walking by the New Amsterdam Theater, look underneath, you can still see the arch behind that billboard And if you look hard enough, you can see it behind the revised marquee as well. So what happens to that old rooftop section of the New Amsterdam? That upstairs section that did showcase the Midnight Frolic is now renovated and holds Disney offices on the top floor. Some of the original elements were kept in that renovation and redesign. I do not have an answer if, in fact, they kept the giant floating moon. One more little spiderweb before we close out our Not Done Yet with the new Amsterdam Theater. Maybe a little paranormal activity. Since Olive Thomas's death back in 1920, the new Amsterdam will have her apparition and ghost show up. Olive goes back to the place that she knows. Apparently, her friendly soul now charmingly haunts the theater just like she had so much charm in life. A few years after her death, a lot of the Ziegfeld Folly girls still around and they'll say to each other, hey, I just saw Olive backstage. She's wearing a green dress with a headdress and a white sash that has Olive written on it. This particular outfit described was Olive Thomas's costume for her big number in the year 1915. Security guards, janitorial staff, often and numerous times see Olive Thomas in the theater. At some point, Olive Thomas only becomes able to be seen by men. The most frequent description of this apparition is that Olive strolls across the stage with a blue bottle in her hand, blows kisses to the guards, as well as the invisible audience, and just strolls out onto 41st Street. 
Olive Thomas, at least within the New Amsterdam theater and her paranormal rendering now, is seen as a very benign spirit. Everyone thinks she's very friendly unless Olive Thomas is ignored. According to folks who have seen this, she gets a little temperamental if anyone does not pay attention to her. From what I can gather, it is lore within the theater that you should always say hello to the two portraits of her that are in the theater as you walk by. One of these portraits is backstage. The other portrait does grace the lobby of the New Amsterdam. A few of the other great stars who have also performed there with a little bit of visual homage, W.C. Fields, Fanny Bryce, Eddie Cantor. You will also find a portrait of Florence Ziegfeld in that lobby, the guy who started it all. Darlings, I think that is all the leftover research that I could not pack into our flapper and bad boy Olive Thomas Jack Pickford story. Hope you enjoyed that little bit more casual episode as we rolled through the building of the new Amsterdam, the hat skirmish, Ziegfeld Follies, Olive Thomas's ghost, as well as a little bit of Counting Crows too. Now you can say you've been down to the new Amsterdam and the house beautiful. Thanks everybody for tuning in to this Double Dunday special release this week. We'll be back next Monday with a brand new done and done for you. Until we meet again then, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Done and Done podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at doneanddonepodcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.